the dawn I stood and watched the place where they laid his body down but on the stone bed where they laid him dead nobody could be found then a man in white a dazzling sight with a voice of triumph said he is alive he is alive he is alive
Jesus and his work's already done. So he's resting as he rises to reclaim the bride he won and his heart beats. risen. He is risen indeed. You're very welcome to this Easter service. It feels like Easter to see you all, and we're going to be celebrating the Lord's resurrection this morning, and let's begin our time of worship with prayer. Lord God, after a year when so much has been lost, we're glad to celebrate this morning the eternal gains Christ won for us. We celebrate that he won those things for us through his death and resurrection. We're glad to focus on the truth that our greatest enemies have been challenged and defeated by Christ. The power of sin, the power of death, and the power of Satan have been broken once for all by our risen Savior. And while we acknowledge we still experience weakness in so many ways, while we are not yet what we will be, still today we celebrate the victory that has already been won by Christ. We give you thanks for our sins forgiven, for the hope of heaven, and for the Holy Spirit who is in us, who works among us because of Christ's victory. So Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you on this Easter morning. We find our greatest joy in you. And we look forward to all that is still to come because of Easter. Amen. Just to let you know a couple of pieces of information that will be helpful, we are having an outdoor Sunday school this morning, 
That's for everyone of primary school age, so a little bit later I will um, let you know when the time is right, and I think if you head that direction, Steve and Paula will have something organized for you outside. If you have a coat, you probably want to take it with you. And if you've been keeping up with the latest update on the government guidelines, you'll have noticed that we are allowed now to sing together outdoors. So this morning we're planning to close our service by singing together in the car park. You won't be forced to do that, of course. You're welcome to remain in your seats if you prefer to do that. But for those of you who want to join me, we will close the service by leaving through these doors, keeping our distance from one another, of course. And there will be song sheets to pick up or they will be handed to you as you leave uh, the building. And then we'll go to the left. The musicians will move around to the back of the church. We'll sing two songs together in the car park, and then I'll dismiss you from there in the car park. And the children will uh, rejoin you while we're singing the songs. And then this evening, we are recommencing our evening services in person. So at 6 p.m., we will be meeting here as well as the normal streaming of the evening service. We'll be continuing in Matthew's Gospel, and we are at that part of the Gospel which focuses on Easter, so I hope you can join us for that. That's all I need to give you by way of information. If you have a Bible, we're going to read one of the New Testament accounts of the resurrection from John's Gospel, John chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 1 to 20. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside of the tomb crying, as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. Then they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. This is God's word.
The New Testament is very clear that the disciples were not easily convinced about the resurrection, but they also show us Jesus supplied the evidence they needed. They didn't jump to conclusions about it. John goes on to share in that passage how Jesus appeared to others, not only to Mary. And before long, those initially skeptical disciples were sharing the message of Easter with anyone who would listen. And our next song retells that message of Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. At this point, the Sunday school will be moving outside. As I said, if you head towards the back.
Back in January, our Prime Minister said this Easter Sunday was going to be a day for national resurrection. That was quite a bold promise for him to make, and I don't suppose that today we are quite where our Prime Minister was hoping we would be, but he was right about one thing. Easter Sunday is Resurrection Day. And even if our COVID recovery had gone exactly how Boris hoped it would when he made that promise in January, even if we were all hugging and kissing one another today and having parties in each other's homes today because we'd left COVID behind, even if all that were happening, that national resurrection wouldn't come anywhere close to the truly good news of Easter. Because the resurrection we celebrate today doesn't just mean a few more freedoms and maybe a few more years of life. The resurrection we celebrate today impacts all of creation for all of eternity. We've already read a passage of scripture that sets out the facts of the resurrection. And we could spend our time this morning focusing on those facts looking at the eyewitness evidence that Jesus really did rise physically from the dead. But instead of that, we're going to think about the significance of Jesus' resurrection. Because the fact of the resurrection is not going to mean much to us unless we can see why it matters. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. It's a long chapter, and this long chapter has plenty to say about Christ's resurrection. We're only going to look at one section of it today, verses 12 to 28. But before we read these verses, we need to know in the first 11 verses of this chapter, Paul has presented the main thing about Christianity, the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is the truth that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The death and resurrection of Christ are the main thing. At the beginning of this letter, Paul spent considerable time focusing on the death of Christ, and now in this chapter, the focus is on Christ's resurrection. Paul has announced it in verses 1 to 11. In those verses, he also listed eyewitnesses who could verify it. And now he wants us to understand why it matters. So let's read from verse 12 down to verse 28. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. 
Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This is God's word. And the main focus here is on the significance of the resurrection. In verses 20 to 28, Paul is going to put it positively. But first, in verses 12 to 19, he wants to get at the significance by putting it negatively. He wants us to consider, what if Christ had not risen? Let's consider what that would mean. What would the world be like? What would it mean for our present and our future if Christ had not risen? A couple of years ago, there was a TV series based on the idea that the Nazis had won the Second World War. And that today, Britain was under Nazi rule as a consequence of that. What would life be like in that case? I didn't see that drama series, but the creators of that show were doing a similar thing to what Paul does in these verses, asking the what if question. And in verse 12, Paul explains why he's asking the what if question. It's because at least some people in the Corinthian church are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Now that seems very odd. It's odd because back in verse 1 of this chapter, Paul said the Corinthian believers had received the good news he preached. He said they had taken their stand on that good news. And in verse 4, he said one of the essential parts of the good news is that Christ was raised on the third day. So how can they have received and taken their stand on this good news while still saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Well, these Christians lived in a culture where many people believed the dead were simply non-existent. Or at best, they existed as disembodied spirits, and that's how they would stay. In other words, there was no hope or expectation of a bodily future beyond death. And in that sense, the Corinthian culture wasn't too different from the culture you and I live in today. And so presumably, when Paul spoke about Christ's resurrection, these Corinthians took it as meaning something a lot less than an actual bodily resurrection. Maybe they thought of some kind of spiritual resurrection. Or maybe they thought the idea that Jesus lived on through the teaching of his disciples. Or that he lived on in the hearts of his people. Whatever they thought exactly, it fell short of believing in the actual bodily resurrection of Christ. And so it entirely missed the point of all the eyewitnesses to the resurrection Paul mentioned back in verses 5 to 8 of this chapter. He mentioned those people as a way of saying, if you don't believe me, go and ask them. They all saw Jesus alive after three days dead in the tomb. And the gospel accounts of Matthew, Luke, and John add that those witnesses didn't just see Jesus, they also talked to him and touched him and they watched him eat. So those who proclaimed the message of the resurrection emphasized the physicality of it. But at least some of the Corinthians have missed that point. And so here Paul wants to make it very clear, if Christ didn't, didn't rise to renewed physical life, then he didn't truly rise at all. And if that is the case, then here's the situation we would find ourselves in. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. They're for nothing. They're totally pointless. 
Verse 15, more than that, we would find to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, we apostles, Paul says, are not nice people. We're liars who are deceiving you. And we stand under God's judgment for misrepresenting God. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Paul leaves no room for the idea that it doesn't matter what you have faith in so long as you have a sincere faith. No way. If you have faith in something that isn't true, then your faith is worthless and your life is a joke. If Jesus' body rotted in the tomb, then Christians are idiots for having faith in Jesus. Because he repeatedly told his disciples he would rise from the dead. If Jesus got that bit wrong, only idiots would trust him about anything else he said. And even worse than being idiots, if Jesus Christ was not raised, Paul says, then we are still in our sins. His death was not an acceptable sacrifice to God because God left him in the tomb. And that means our sins are not paid for. We're not forgiven people. We're still facing to pay the penalty of sin ourselves. And we will be doing that for all of eternity. We could have no assurance of peace with God today and no hope of peace with him on judgment day. Verse 18, if Christ has not been raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. When the early Christians spoke about death as falling asleep, they meant to say that death was a temporary state. People who fall asleep wake up again. And the Bible promised that God's people would wake in God's welcoming presence. But here Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then those who die trusting in him are, in fact, lost. Meaning they're experiencing eternal destruction away from God's welcoming presence. And so putting all of this together in verse 19, Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, Paul is not denying that Christianity does bring blessing here and now. In other places, he talks about the joy and peace we can experience, the purpose Christianity gives us, the power of forgiveness it brings into our lives, and the good works it can produce in our lives. Christianity does bring about all that here and now and a lot more. But Christianity also calls us to sacrifice. It calls us to deny ourselves and prefer others. Following Christ may well cause us to face opposition. It will almost certainly lead us on a path that includes suffering. Often deep and bitter suffering. And what promise does Christianity hold out to us in our suffering? How does it encourage us to keep going in our suffering? It's through the promise that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The promise that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. As Christians, we persevere in obedience, we pursue faithfulness even when it brings suffering, and we do it because we believe there are greater things ahead. 
But if there is no eternal glory ahead, then suffering and sacrifice and loss for the sake of Christ are not worth it. So Paul says, let's be totally honest with each other. If there is no eternal joy, we are making a foolish investment. We are of all people most to be pitied. That is the reality if Christ has not risen. Sin and death have won. And our sacrifices for the sake of Christ make us pitiful. Without the physical resurrection of Christ, Christianity is miserable and hopeless. But thank God, that is not the reality we live in today. In verse 20, Paul breaks the tension that he's been creating, and he reminds us, but Christ has indeed been raised. We're not living in that alternate reality I've just been talking about. This is reality. The sun has risen. Just like in Britain today, we don't live under Nazi rule, so the world today doesn't have a dead savior. Those are alternate realities that have not come to pass. We've already mentioned that back in verses 5 to 8, Paul listed many eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. And because of those men and women, you and I have the same access to that historical event as we have to other historical events. We have access to it through the witness of those who were there, by means of the records they left behind. Those records are contained in the New Testament. And those witnesses to Christ's resurrection were willing to die for their story. They did not hold to it lightly. It wasn't something they were unsure about. And so in verses 20 to 28, Paul is able to say, because Christ is risen. Because that is the reality of the situation, now here are the repercussions. Here's what it means. And Paul gives two entailments of Christ's resurrection in these verses. He tells us that our resurrection is guaranteed, and he tells us that creation will be renewed. The key to understanding these verses is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. The first page of the Bible gives us the account of God creating this world. And at the climax of that account, we're told that God created human beings in his own image. And he gave humanity a mission. Their mission was to rule over God's world on God's behalf. God blessed the first man and woman, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Humanity was commissioned to rule over God's world on God's behalf. Not to trash God's creation, but to bring about its flourishing. God did not make this fantastic world so we could break it. Our mission from the beginning was to rule it well for God's glory. And our head in that was Adam. Together with Eve, he was our representative. Adam was commissioned on behalf of all of us. But we only have to read as far as Genesis chapter 3 to find out how Adam and Eve did in their mission. They rebelled against the commission God had given. They still wanted to rule the world, but not on God's behalf. They wanted to rule it for themselves. They wanted to take God's place. So they rebelled against him, and their reign brought death and destruction to the world. They were called to make this world flourish, 
but they brought brokenness instead from top to bottom. That is the background to these verses in 1 Corinthians 15 because they tell us Christ was raised to achieve what Adam failed to achieve. Christ was raised to raise creation to what it was always intended to be. A world that flourishes because it's a world where God's reign is complete and uncontested. Christ was raised to put right what Adam put wrong. To make this a world where God is all in all. And as I said, in these verses, Paul shows us two aspects of that. First, because Christ is risen, our resurrection is guaranteed. Look at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Verse 20 mentions the first fruits. That comes from the Old Testament. When a crop was ready for harvesting, the first portion would be gathered and offered up to God in thanksgiving. The idea was there was much more still to come, and all of that was God's too. Now, of course, the harvest would be used to feed the farmer and his family, but it was God's harvest. So that first portion, the first fruits, was both the start of the full harvest and it was the sign of who the harvest belonged to. So Paul says, what was the harvest that came from Adam? Well, he sinned and died. That was the harvest that came from Adam. He sinned and died, and we've all been sinning and dying ever since. Adam's sin and death were the evil first fruits of an evil harvest. Since the creation of the human race, Adam has been our head and representative. His failed reign over creation set out the destiny for the rest of us. It's a destiny of death. And if we want to complain that that's not fair, all we need to do is pause and realize none of us have done any better than Adam. Ever since Adam brought in a reign of sin and death, we've been reusing his approach. We rebel against God just like Adam did. We think and act like we are God, just like Adam did. We all deserve our share in the harvest of death. But, Paul says, Jesus Christ was raised from death to be the head of a new humanity. One that is reconciled to God. And lives to serve God in the world, not to try and take his place. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we join this new humanity. And that part is very important because not everyone belongs to this new humanity. Adam's old humanity did include everyone. But verse 23 says, Jesus Christ's new humanity consists of those who belong to him. We belong to him when we trust him as our savior and live for him as our Lord. At that point, we begin to experience new life here and now. We're no longer God's enemies. We've become his ambassadors in this world. No longer working against him, but working for him. And we know this is just a foretaste of what's still to come. We will rise as Christ was raised. 
His resurrection was the first fruits. We are the rest of the harvest. Verse 23 says, He will be raised when He comes, meaning when He returns to earth. At Christmas, we celebrate Christ's first advent, His arrival on earth as a baby. But the New Testament tells us to expect a second advent, when Christ will come again, not as a baby, but as the all-conquering King. And when He comes, those who belong to Him will enter fully into his resurrection life. The later parts of this chapter give details about what that life will be like. But the point here is, Christ's resurrection was not some isolated, quirky event. Something that was good for him, but not for anybody else. Jesus' resurrection was not just a nice piece of icing on the cake to the few years he spent on earth like a little flourish to sign off with. No, his resurrection began his reign as head of a new humanity. And when we join that new humanity, his resurrection becomes the guarantee of our own. He is the first fruits of a great harvest that will be gathered to God. And here, then, is the good news about where we will live our resurrection life. It will be in a world that flourishes because it is as it was always meant to be. A world that flourishes because it's a world where God is all in all. Because Christ is risen, creation will be renewed. Look at those last verses again, verses 24 to 28. Then, in other words, when Christ returns and we are raised, the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Again, the key to understanding these verses is to remember Genesis chapter 1. We saw how Adam was given a mission to develop creation and to rule it well for God's glory. The world was to be the arena of God's glory. That's what Adam's reign was supposed to bring about. But instead, we've seen Adam and his children brought a reign of sin and death. So when we read here about Christ reigning until all God's enemies are under his feet, we're talking about a specific kind of reign. Again, think of it as a mission. Christ's mission was to put right what Adam put wrong. And that mission has an obvious end point. It will end when all corruption has been rooted out. All evil and rebellion has been crushed. All brokenness has been healed, replaced with righteousness and peace. At that point, God's creation will be filled with his glory. Christ will have put right what Adam put wrong. His mission will be over. Like a general who has won the war. That doesn't mean Christ will then be demoted. No, he will continue at his Father's side, sharing the full divinity and authority of his Father. In that sense, he will never cease to reign. But a certain aspect of his reign will be completed. Every enemy will have been subdued. 
God will be all in all. When we read about Christ destroying enemies, we naturally think of corrupt regimes and governments that will be brought to an end. And that's certainly part of it. But the enemies in view here are anything and everything that stands in the way of true peace and true wholeness. So we're not just talking about an end to war. This includes the destruction of sickness and poverty. It includes the end of spiritual darkness and spiritual slavery. It includes Christ's victory over every last trace of rebellion in my own heart and your own heart. Those enemies will be completely defeated as well. Part of Christ's reign that renews creation involves making his people truly new. Renewing our minds and our attitudes as well as our bodies. And all of this will take place because Christ is risen. His resurrection is our guarantee that all the Father's good purposes will be fulfilled. Those of us who belong to Christ will not just be raised, we will be raised to a world where finally our God is all in all. His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's never underestimate the significance of the resurrection. Let's never lose the joy of realizing Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. If you're not a Christian, can you begin to see the importance of Easter? Can you agree this requires a response from you? It's not something to shrug your shoulders about. The claim of Christianity is that Christ is risen. He's not just a figure from the past. He is as alive today as he ever was. And your eternal destiny depends on whether you trust in him as your savior and bow to him as your Lord. I encourage you to do that. I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards. And at the very least, why not read the accounts of the resurrection in the four New Testament Gospels? Examine the evidence and ask God to show you the truth of what you're reading. And if you are a Christian, can you feel the hope and the confidence that Easter brings? The refreshment that comes when we stop and remind ourselves Christ is risen. We can breathe in that truth all over again, like a big lungful of fresh air in the midst of all the other things that weigh us down. We can breathe in this truth today knowing it makes all the difference for our present and our future. And as you and I focus on that truth, it is very hard to keep from singing. And so I invite you in just a moment to follow me as I follow the musicians out into the car park as I said, there are song sheets by the door. Take one as you leave. And when everyone who wants to come is there, we will sing two songs together and then I will dismiss you from there. See what a morning, gloriously bright, 
with the dawning of hope in Jerusalem. Folded the grateful to the light as the angels announce Christ is risen. See God's salvation plan, wrought in love, born in peace, paid in sacrifice. Fulfilled in Christ the man, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. In sorrow she turns from the empty tomb. Hears a voice speaking, calling her name. It's the Master, the Lord, wasted life again. The voice that spans through the years, speaking life, stirring hope, bringing peace to us. is risen from the dead. One with the Father, angel of grace, through the Spirit, who clothes faith with certainty. Honor and blessing, glory and praise to the King, crowned with power and authority. has conquered, and we shall reign with him, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead, and we are raised with him, death is dead, love has won, Christ has from the dead. He's a rich man worth more than a poor man A stranger worth less than a friend He's a baby worth more than an old man your beginning worth more than your end Is the president worth more than his assassin? Does your value decrease with your crime? Like when Christ took the place of Barabbas Would you say he was wasting his time? Well, how much do you think you are worth, boy? Will anyone stand up and say, Would you say that a man is worth nothing Until someone is willing to pay? Well, I suppose that you think that you matter Well, how much do you matter? To whom? It's much easier at night when with friends and bright lights, and much later alone in your room. Do you think they'll miss one in a billion when you finish this old human race? Does it really make much of a difference when your friends have forgotten your face Well, how much do you think you are worth more? Will anyone stand up and say Would you say that a man is worth nothing Until someone is willing to pay 
if you heard that your life had been valued, that a price had been paid on the name. But you ask what was traded, how much, and who paid it, who was he and what was his name. If you heard that his name was called Jesus, would you say that the price was too dear? Held to the cross, not by nails, but by love. It was you, broke his heart, not the spear. Would you say you are worth what it cost him? You say no, the price stays the same. If it don't make you cry, laugh it off, pass it by. But just remember the day when you throw it away. That he paid what he thought you were worth. Well, how much do you think he is worth more? Will anyone stand up and say, Tell me what are you willing to give him in return? For the price that he pays. Is a rich man worth more than a poor man? A stranger worth less than a friend? Is a baby worth more than an old man? Your beginning worth more than your end Is the president worth more than his assassin Does your value 